Along those lines, I really like the story of the little boy that fell out of bed one morning. Now, I don't like the fact that little boys fall out of bed. I like his response. When he fell out, he hit the ground with a huge thud, just a huge thud. And of course, he started crying as any little boy would after he had fallen out of bed. His mother, being like so many moms, jumped right out of bed, headed into his bedroom where she grabbed hold of him, held him on her lap, and she got him quieted down and finally able to ask him, Honey, are you okay? And he said, Yes, I'm okay. Then she said, What in the world happened? This was his response. Mom, I guess I just stayed too close to where I got in. That's, that's a good response. I stayed too close to where I got in. You realize that a lot of people do that same thing in their walk with Christ? Along those lines, she'd been out partying on a Friday night. She'd done it a number of different times throughout the course of her life. It wasn't anything new to her. When she was out partying, alcohol was always involved. And in Marty's life, that meant way too much alcohol. On this particular night, she had drank a lot more than she should have. She got into her car, headed home, and thankfully the police picked her up before anything disastrous happened. She was sitting in jail now for the second time in the same circumstances. Her second DUI. She was pretty flustered. Not sure what she was going to do. Scared to death of the consequences. Scared to death of what the judge was going to say and how her life was going to change. It happened on a Friday night. On Sunday evening, there was a chapel service. She had never gone to one before and decided maybe she ought to check it out. So she did. In the county jail, she went into the chapel service where she heard Jesus Christ preached. First time she had ever heard about Jesus. First time she had ever heard what he could do for her, how her life could be different. It was the first time she'd ever heard the promises of the Bible. She was captured by him, enthralled by him. So that night in the, the loneliness of her jail cell, Marty got down on her knees and she asked Jesus into her heart. The person that had taught the Bible study had shared with them what baptism was all about. After she got released on bail, she made her way to a church as quickly as she could. She was baptized into the Lord, and she began a walk with Him. For the next 60 days, everything was great. She had no worries. She would say later that she had no worries because the judge told her that she couldn't be anywhere near a drop of alcohol for 60 days until she faced Him again. If she were to do any drinking or be around people that were drinking, she would be arrested and thrown back into jail. So she had no problem whatsoever staying away from it. Friends would call her and they would say, hey, we're getting together on Friday night. We want you to join us. She would say, is there going to be alcohol there? They'd say, of course there is. And she'd say, I can't come. They thought she was crazy. They just wanted her to come be with them. She didn't have to drink. Just come be with them. And she said, I can't be there. 60 days was the easiest thing. And then she faced the judge. The judge told her what was going to happen now that she had faced her second DUI. She lost her driver's license for a long period of time. She was placed on probation, community service, all the different things had become a part of that mess. And and she accepted it. There was no fighting it, no arguing it, no disagreeing with the consequences. She had done what she had done. That happened on a Wednesday. On Friday, she got phone calls from her friends saying that they were getting together and they wanted her to join them. And and she thought, well, the judge didn't tell me I can't be there now. So she decided to go. Convinced in her own mind that she wasn't going to drink anything at all. She was just going to be with her friends. She made it about two hours and then she had a beer. 
The next Friday night, she thought, well, I can go and I can just drink one and that'll be okay. One turned into two and then two became three. And the week after that, three was a distant memory and four and five happened. Four months after her second arrest, Marty was picked up again, thrown back into the county jail. Her third DUI, two of them coming within one year. She sat in her cell. She asked herself over and over and over again, how did I get here? What happened? Four months ago, I became a Christian and everything was going to be great. How did I get here? Why am I in jail again? Why am I locked up for this same exact thing? What happened? She thought through it. Might be that this thought would run through her mind. I guess I stayed too close to where I got in. And she did. In Christianity, that happens all the time. We don't put any distance between where we get into Christ and where we are today. Instead, we stay very close to the edge. And the edge is a dangerous place. It's a dangerous place. In Christ, we have got to get some distance between where we get in and where we live. If we don't, a lot hangs in the balance. It might be that Marty, like so many people forgot or maybe never even studied this great teaching from the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5. Open up with me. I want you to be able to see this. Matthew chapter 5, verse 30. These are Jesus' words. This comes right out of the Sermon on the Mount. Listen to what he says. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Now listen again. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Now that's a physical illustration that Jesus is using. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out, get rid of it. But there are spiritual applications of that physical illustration. Things like this. If alcohol causes you to stumble, don't ever take a drink again. If drugs, and by the way, all drugs with the exception of prescription drugs and sometimes even prescription drugs, cause people to stumble. If the drugs cause you to stumble, get rid of them. You don't need them. There are other ways that we can boil this whole thing down too. If you have relationships in your life that cause you to stumble, cut them off. Get rid of them. Don't spend time around those people. If they are detrimental to your walk with the Lord, if they are detrimental to your growth in Christ... Stay away from them. Cut them off. You don't need them. Now here's some real tangible ones for you. If the television causes you to stumble, cut it off. If the internet causes you to stumble, cut it off. If your computer causes you to stumble, cut it off. There are some guys that are going to take this really hard. If your gaming systems cause you to stumble, cut them off. Get rid of them. You don't need them. Because a lot of those things push you back close to the edge. They don't necessarily push you out of Christ, but they push you back close to the edge. And if you're not careful, you may find yourself falling out. You have to get some distance between where you enter Christ and where you want to live. And the only way to do that is by following this teaching. If there are things that hold you back, get rid of them. You don't need them. Cut them off. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of heaven without them than it is to go to hell. So cut them off. 
One of the big stumbling blocks that people have with that type of teaching is the thought that once a person becomes a Christian, everything changes right on the spot. And they grab hold of examples out of the Bible like the Apostle Paul's life. Paul met Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus, and the very next thing we read in the book of Acts is he began to preach. And people believe that that's exactly the way it should work for them. But what you have to understand is that's actually false teaching. That's not the way it worked in the Apostle's life. Let me show you what I'm talking about. We're going to go to the book of Galatians and also to the book of Acts. Galatians chapter 1 and Acts chapter 9. We're going to bounce back and forth between them, so I encourage you to keep a finger in both so that you can actually see the way this plays out. We're going to start in Galatians chapter 1. So find Acts chapter 9, stick a little marker there, keep a finger there, and then Galatians 1. Here's the history of Paul's life in just two verses. Galatians 1 verse 13. For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism behind, beyond many Jews of my own age and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my father. Now back in the book of Acts, and you're in chapter 9, so you don't have to go to this, but in Acts chapter 22, verse 4, Paul would actually describe differently what his life looked like. Listen to this. I persecuted the followers of this way. The followers of this way means Christianity. I persecuted the followers of Christianity to their death, arresting both men and women and throwing them into prison. Paul was actually there, Acts chapter 8 would tell you this, Paul was there when Stephen was stoned. He was holding the coats of the people that were hurling rocks at him, and the Bible says he was giving his approval to Stephen's death. That's how bad he was. By his own admission, he was a murderer. He was a persecutor of Christians. And then he meets Jesus. Now we're going to go to Acts chapter 9. Actually, back to Galatians 1, verse 15. But when God, who set me apart from birth and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his Son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not consult any man. Now you're going to find out how Paul became a Christian. It's a great story. I'm going to ask Tina to come up here and read for us Acts chapter 9, 1 through 19. So follow along with her if you have your Bibles open. Acts chapter 9, 1 through 19. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street 
and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem, and he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord, Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Now that's a dramatic story. I hope you caught what actually happened in verse 17. If not, listen to this again. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Right there. Right there, Jesus touched him. Prior to that, Paul had been totally contrary to the things of God. He had been persecuting people, even murdering them. God had called him through his son, Jesus Christ, on the road to Damascus. He had only experienced that call. There was blindness attached to it. But when Ananias touched him, Jesus touched him. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. Folks, it works that way sometimes. There are times when you get to present Jesus Christ to people and you are the touch of Jesus in their lives. It is as if heaven opens and a hand comes forth from there and lays itself on someone's shoulder because you're faithful to talk to them. You're faithful to do what God has told you to do. You can be the touch of Jesus Christ for other people. At that moment, Paul's life changed. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. He became a new person right there. Everything about Paul was different now because Ananias had touched him. Let's go on to verse 19. After taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. Now here's where the false teaching comes from, or the faulty teaching. People believe that all of that happened almost instantly. Because we go from verse 18 into verse 19, and we read about Paul the sinner being touched by Ananias, filled with the Holy Spirit, and the next thing that he's doing is preaching. So people think it happened just like that. But it didn't. It didn't. Let's go back to Galatians chapter 1. We'll pick up again in verse 15. When God, who set me apart from birth and called me by His grace, was pleased to reveal His Son in me so that I might preach Him among the Gentiles, I did not consult any man. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went immediately into Arabia and later returned to Damascus. Three years later, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Peter and stayed with him 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. I assure you before God that what I am writing you is no lie. Later I went to Syria and Cilicia. I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only heard the report. The man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they praise God because of me. Three years, three years he spent in Arabia being taught by the Holy Spirit 
being trained in the ways of the New Testament that he might leave the law behind. But in Acts chapter 9, you see us go from verse 18 into verse 19. Here's what you have to pay close attention to in your Bibles. And if you're in Acts chapter 9, you'll be able to see this. There is a break. There is a break right in the middle of verse 19. In my Bible, it actually includes this heading, Saul and Damascus and Jerusalem. But there's a big old white spot in your Bible. If you are a note taker, if you're a person who writes in your Bibles, and you should write in your Bibles, it's a journal of your walk with God, then right there in that white spot, that break in the verse, write these words, three years. Galatians chapter 1. Three years. Galatians chapter 1. You see, once you begin to understand that, you can actually figure out what happened. Saul took three years to move from the edge where he entered Christianity into where he wanted to live with Christ. Before he ever began to preach, there was a three-year investment. During that three-year period, things began to change. Habits in his life began to change. Mindsets began to change. More than anything, what happened was Paul grew up in Christ. Paul moved from infancy, from the edge, into maturity so that he never had to run the risk of falling out. He got some distance there. He got some growth. The Bible teaches over and over and over again that we need to experience that type of development, that type of growth. We need to spend time where habits can be changed, where mindsets can be changed, where old patterns can disappear, where things that used to define us can be left behind. We can move from the edge into maturity. Let me show you some of those. We talked a little bit about that growth process last week, but let me show you some of these in the Bible. You don't have to turn with me. I'll go through them real fast. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. Writer of Hebrews would say it this way. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 1. Therefore, let us leave the elementary teachings about Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and of faith in God. Instruction about baptism, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And God permitting, we will do so. Even Peter would write about this period of time that is necessary in everyone's life. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2. Like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. In his second letter, chapter 3, verse 18, he would word it like this but grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be both glory and honor, now and forever. Amen. You see, all through the New Testament, we find the same teaching. You've got to grow up. You've got to move away from the edge into a deeper relationship with Christ. You have to move away from where you get in into the place that you want to live. And folks, if you only want to live next to the edge... Understand that it's possible that you get sucked back into an old way of life from right there. Understand if you don't move very far from the edge, you can get knocked out or you can fall back out. So you grow. And you grow up and you mature and you get to a place where you want to live. Some people might say, well, that sounds really good, preacher. How do we do that? How do we pull it off? Well, we pull it off by developing what can be called holy habits or spiritual disciplines. 
Remember, during this period of time, whether it's three years, five years, ten years, whatever it is, and, and really you should know that maturing in Christ never ends. During that time, you develop spiritual disciplines. Disciplines are things that guarantee your growth. Disciplines are things that you invest in to make sure that you continue maturing. They become habits. When they become holy habits, they're habits that will lead you closer to the Lord. I'm going to give you a few of them this morning. We're going to go through them just one by one. For some of you, this will be brand new. For some of the rest of you, you've heard this all your life. It's good to be reminded of it. It's good to be reminded that these disciplines have to exist if you want the most out of your relationship with Christ. These disciplines have to exist if you want to get away from the edge. Let's start with one of the most important, the discipline of prayer. I want to take you to Romans, book of Romans, chapter 12 and verse 12. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, and faithful in prayer. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, and faithful in prayer. Prayer is that place where we build the foundation of relationship with Jesus Christ. It's the point of communication, where you share your heart with Him, where you talk with Him. But for some reason, prayer has been an elusive thing to a lot of people. It really has. And oftentimes, that elusiveness comes out like this, I don't know how to pray. Or people will say something along these lines. Other people pray so much better than I do. I can't do it. There's no way that I can pray. The best way, the absolute best way, and again, if you're a note taker, write this down so that you don't forget it. The best way, absolute best way to learn how to pray is to pray. That's it. You don't need to read books on it. You don't need to go to a prayer seminar. You don't need to sit down with other people and say, hey, show me how to do this. The disciples did. They sat with Jesus and they said, teach us to pray. He gave them the Lord's Prayer. He gave that to us. There's your pattern. So you can start right there and then add to it your voice. The absolute best way to learn how to pray is pray. And sometimes you'll think, well, gosh, David Boulware prays better than I do, or Scott Granger prays better than I do, or Brian Stewart prays better than I do, or Jesse James prays better than I do, or Steve Snockenberg prays better than I do. No, they don't. They talk differently than you do. Your voice is the uniqueness of prayer. So you pray, and you add your voice to it. That's all it takes. The absolute best way to learn how to pray is to pray. There are a lot of people that will say, well, how often do I pray? Some people are extremely good at at having a a concerted prayer time in the mornings as soon as they get out of bed. There are folks, and I know some of them in this church, that pray 45 minutes to an hour every day. I am not one of those people. I can't do it. My mind wanders. I lose my thoughts. I have too much ADD within me to hang on to an hour-long prayer time. That doesn't take anything away from the people that can do it, nor does it take anything away from the people like me who cannot pull off an hour-long prayer time. So what I do is pray throughout the course of the day. I learned that that was okay from Paul's teachings to the church in Thessalonica when he said, pray without ceasing. Pray all the time. So I start praying in the morning, and I quit praying at night, and I talk to God about everything throughout the course of the day. It's a conversational prayer. And if you need to adopt that, great. If you're a person that can pray for an hour at a time, pray for an hour at a time. You find what works for you. There are a number of people then that would say something along these lines. Well, I have to be inspired before I can pray. I need to have something laid on me before I pray. That's fine. Just make sure you get inspired every day. 
That's all it takes. You pray every day. You talk to God every day. However that looks for you, you talk to God every day. Paul says to the the church in Rome, you be faithful in prayer. You be faithful in prayer. And once you figure out how it is that you're going to talk to God, you have to figure out the next discipline, which is listening to God. And that happens through spending time in His Word. It happens through spending time in the Bible. Let's go to the book of James. He has a great teaching on this. James chapter 1, starting in verse 22. Do not merely listen to the Word, and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But the man who looks intently into the perfect law, into the Bible, into the word of God that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard but doing it, he will be blessed in what he does. Did you catch that last sign or that last sentence? The person who can look intently into the Word of God and learn from it and apply it will be blessed in all he does. There is a blessing connected to the amount of time that you spend in the Bible. And if you want to develop holy habits, this one has to be there. Now, I'm going to kind of jump off the rail here for a second, and this may sound a little bit like a a pet peeve. It is, actually. So that's why it sounds that way. I'm going to climb up on a soapbox. There's a really interesting thing that is happening in our society today. Electronics have captured people's attention like no other time in all of society. There are computers, there are iPads, there are iPods, there are iPhones, smartphones, and people seem to be looking at them all the time. Even at home, people seem to be looking at them all the time. This joke came across my desk this past week. It kind of sums up the way things are working. It's called power outage. We had a power outage tonight, and my PC, TV, and games console shut down immediately. It was raining, so I couldn't golf. Consequently, I had to talk to my wife for a few hours. She seems like a nice person. (laughs) Now, that, that actually sums it up pretty good. People are literally living in the same home and never talking to each other. Because they have iPads in front of them. They have computer screens in front of them. They have smartphones. I know one family that sits in the same living room and texts each other. They don't talk. They text each other, sitting in the exact same room. Now, here's the real tragedy of that. Those same electronics that have destroyed real relationships on earth are destroying relationship with God. People are spending so much time on Facebook, Pinterest, Craigslist, eBay, that they're not even talking to God. And they're not spending time in his word. And they'll come back later and say things like this. Well, I just don't have time to spend time in God's word. Tina and I were talking about this. And, and last week she had something pop up on Facebook. And this isn't a direct quote, but it's, it captures the thought of it. It said on Facebook, if you have enough time to be here, you have enough time to be in your Bible. And that's really true. It is really true. If you have enough time to be on Facebook, you have enough time to be in the Bible. If you have enough time to be on Pinterest, you have enough time to be in your Bible. If you have enough time to be on Craigslist or eBay, you have enough time to be in the Word of God. All you have to do is choose the Bible. All you have to do is choose Scripture. It can be really hard for people to do that. 
But as much as it's destroying our relationship with God and you see the effect that it has on families, you have to confront it at some point. By the way, the interesting thing that's happening, and I'm seeing it in the counseling office all the time now, is couples are complaining about the role that electronics have in their homes. There are people that are saying, I just want him or her to unplug and engage with me, and they won't do it. I can't even talk to my husband or wife because their face is buried in the iPad. Their face is buried in the phone. And do you know who's complaining the most about that? Men. Men are the ones who are saying that my wife is so caught up in Pinterest and Facebook and all these other things that she isn't even talking to me. Now, interestingly enough, 20 years ago, it would have been women that would have said the same thing. Women would have said, he won't quit watching Sports Center. All he wants to do is watch sports. He won't unplug the TV and talk to me. Well, in the course of just 20 years, things have somewhat reversed. They really have. But the simple truth is, electronics are taking people away from one another, and they are taking people away from God. So here's my challenge to you. If you are a Facebook person, if you're a Pinterest person, Craigslist, eBay, whatever it is, if you're a computer person, then you commit yourself to spending as much time in other conversations with significant people in your life and as much time in the Word of God as you spend with your computer. So if you spend three hours a night on Facebook, three hours a night in Pinterest or on Pinterest or Craigslist or eBay, then your commitment would be to spend three hours talking to your husband or wife. There are some husbands right now going, are you kidding She's fine. We don't don't need to talk like that. You spend three hours in Facebook. You spend three hours in your Bible. You spend three hours on Pinterest. You spend three hours in the Word of God. What you will find is that your Pinterest time, your Facebook time, your Craigslist, eBay time is going to shrink if you pick up this challenge. But what you will also find is that your relationship with God will grow. And your relationship with other people will grow. You unplug for a purpose. That you might get to know the people around you and you might get to know the holy God that you love. Don't let this trap come into your house. Let me throw this out there as well. Gaming systems are just as bad. And I hear it all the time in the counseling office. Same way. All he wants to do is come home and play video games. All he does is get on the computer and play games. And he'll say, well, but I'm talking to other people while I'm playing games. They might live in Europe. They might live in Africa. They might live all these other places, but we're playing these games together. Well, you know what? There's some people at home that want to play some games with you. There are people at home that want to talk to you, so get off the stinking computer. And that's the best way to do it. Engage the people around you, and you engage God. So you learn how to pray, and you learn how to listen so that you can receive things back from God. The second or the third thing then is learn how to give. Now some people are thinking, oh gosh, here it comes. This is where the preacher's going to talk about money and, and oh, I knew it was coming. We were going to get hit with this. Here's one of the joys of being the preacher of Libby Christian Church. I do not have to stand up and say on a regular basis, hey, we need you to give or we're going to have to turn off the lights. I don't have to stand up and say, hey, we need you to give because ministries are going to be cut if you don't. I don't have to stand up and the elders and the finance team don't have to come up week after week after week and beg you to give money because this church excels at the grace of giving. And it has since I've known it. This church has excelled at the grace of giving. In the coming months, we're going to show you some projects that we're going to do that are in addition to the giving. But the church does quite well financially because the people of the church are giving the way they're supposed to. That's a cool thing. But if you want to move away from the edge and get into a deeper place with God, giving is one of the most tangible ways to do it. 
Let me show you what the Bible says about this. We're in the book of 1 Corinthians now. Chapter 16, verse 2. On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with his income. Now there's the teaching of the Bible about tithing within the New Testament. The New Testament church said that on the first day of the week, the Lord's Day, when we gather together, we're going to take a collection. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 2 just lays it out very plainly. But you may wonder what the purpose of that collection is. Well, obviously it is to meet the physical needs of the church, but it goes much deeper than that. We're going to go back to the Old Testament to see that purpose. This is from the book of Deuteronomy, and it comes from the quotation we're going to use from the Living Bible. Take a look at this. Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse 23. The purpose of tithing is to teach you to always put God first in your lives. Now, that's the Living Bible translation of that verse. You might read it in the NIV or the New American Standard, and you'll see that the Living Bible had to stretch to get it, but it is right. The purpose of tithing is to teach you to always put God first in your life. In the Old Testament, the concept was first fruits. The first fruit offering was God's offering. So in our world, the first check you write is the check to the church. The first bill that you pay if you're an online bill payer is the one to the church. The first money that you spend every month is God's money. And when it is God's money, you're learning how to put God first and you're moving farther from the edge. And you're getting deeper in that relationship with Him. That'll take us to the fourth one then which is fellowship. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25. Read very simply. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. There is a very alarming trend happening in the United States of America today. It is measurable by church attendance. Across to our country, and, and there have been a number of studies on this, and, and it works in rural settings, it works in urban settings, it works everywhere. People consider themselves, according to this study and the trends that are really popular right now, highly involved in church if they attend once every eight weeks. That is six times a year. Six times a year, once every two months, if I go to church, then I am highly involved in that church. But they're not. Not at all. And if you're one of those people that comes only once every eight weeks, you're not highly involved in the church. This may be your church. This may be the place that you would call your church home, but you're not highly involved because one of the key elements, according to the book of Hebrews, cannot happen when you're only coming once every eight weeks. The writer of Hebrews says, let us encourage one another all the more as we see the day approaching. Meaning, the closer we get to the return of Jesus Christ, the more we need to build one another up, the tougher it's going to be. And at church... That's the place where we can do it. Because outside of church, the world is going to take everything from you. They're going to grab as much as they possibly can. When you come back to church, you get to fill things back up. You get to leave ready to go out and do whatever you need to do because people are praying for you. People know what's happening in your life. They are crying with you. They are happy and celebrating with you. They are doing life with you. Church is the place that that works. So the writer of Hebrews knew that we were going to need a reminder. The closer we get to Jesus Christ coming back, let's not give up meeting together. Let's make this a priority. It's a holy habit that helps you move from the edge into a deeper relationship with Jesus Christ. 
These last two, giving and fellowship, both seem like laws. They both seem like rules and regulations that we try to impose on people, but that's not what they are at all. When we practice giving and we practice fellowship, what we are really doing is cutting one or two of the ropes that the world has on us. We are cutting those free that we might get closer to God because the world says you don't need to go to church. The world says you don't need to give. Well, Christianity teaches the opposite. You want to cut those ropes? You give and you make church a priority and you move further from the edge, deeper into a relationship with Christ so that you don't find yourself laying on the floor after hitting it really hard and then saying, how did I get here? And having to answer it this way, I guess I stayed too close to where I got in. I want to give you three verses and with them, three questions. We're almost done, so stay with me. We're going to start first in the Gospel of John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, chapter 3, verse 3. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. If you're taking notes, write down John chapter 3, verse 3, and then this question. Here it is. Have you been born again? Are you a Christian? Have you given your life to Jesus Christ? And if so, that will lead you to the second question. This one's found in the book of Psalms. Psalm chapter 51 Verse 10, David writes, Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Here's the question. What is the condition of your heart? David would say, Create in me a clean heart and renew a right spirit within me. What is the condition of your heart? Third question then. This one's back in the book of Romans, chapter 12, verse 2. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Third question, what is the condition of your life? If people look at you, do they see the world or do they see Christ? Do not conform any longer to the patterns of this world, but be transformed, Paul says, by the renewing of your minds, developing new habits, developing new disciplines, that you might live God's will. Holy habits, spiritual disciplines, make that possible. And they move you further and further and further from the edge the longer you spend with them. Develop holy habits. It matters. Develop spiritual disciplines and the rest of your walk with Christ will be built on them. Develop those and you will experience the touch of Jesus and you will live the way he wants you to. Why don't you stand and pray with me? Father in heaven, these disciplines taught to us in the Bible and given to us by you, Lord, they just matter. But it's hard sometimes even for Christians to see the point. Lord, show us the point. It's hard for us to see the significance. Show us the significance. It's hard for us sometimes just to get in. And and so, Lord, I want to ask that those that are living on the other side will get in and then move deeper and grow in you and get closer to you. Lord, grant us the time to make that happen. And Sometimes that means even stopping us from running too fast that we might grow in you.
I am so thankful that Paul would write what he did in the, the book of Galatians and he would even add to it the statement that he's not lying three years that he grew before he ever went back. Lord, help us grow. In Jesus' name, amen.